you know, in this period after the Civil War, there's a, a pinnacle of about 12 years where this market hunting phenomenon really catapulted itself into the slaughter of these 40 million bison and the, the hide value increased to about $5 a hide. To put that in perspective, the value of an average acre of land in the United States at the time was $5. Oh my so, god! Although it doesn't seem like a lot in today's dollar, the fact that you could slaughter one bison and send the hide on a rail car back east and make enough money to buy one acre of land and you start looking at the herd and you're a businessman with, you know, wartime experience, you got a little renegade in you, this is a huge opportunity. Oh, it's right? a life-changing. Yeah, it's a gold rush. Yeah, it was a gold rush. Welcome to Where Hope Grows, a podcast curated to tell the inspiring stories of land stewards, ranchers, and farmers who are on the front lines of the regenerative revolution. Interweaved with wisdom inspired by Mother Nature, these journeys are testaments to her capacity for healing ourselves, our agricultural systems, and our planet. This is Where Hope Grows. Hey everyone, this is Taylor Collins, and you are listening to Where Hope Grows. This podcast is brought to life by the support of Force of Nature, Rome Ranch, and of course, the grace and beauty of Mother Nature. Hello, friends. It's time for another enchanting episode of Where Hope Grows. And for those of you that know my love language, you know that my love language is bison and all things bison. And I just adore celebrating their majestic wisdom and their beauty and the architecture, the relationship to the land on which we depend and how the fertility that we mine and we utilize today as a global civilization was gifted to the planet by these large herds of our native mammal. And so I couldn't think of anyone better to geek out about bison with than my friend, Marshall Seedorf. Marshall happens to be the vice president of sales at Force of Nature. He is a passionate conservationist, a lover of all things wild and free, a student of American history, a huntsman, and a naturalist. Now, while Marshall has many attributes that I am fond of, I find one that I admire the most. And that's the fact that he looks like Alan Jackson, circa 1993. Check out the Chattahoochee video in which that dude is water skiing with a cowboy hat on and a handlebar mustache. And that's exactly what Marshall looks like. Now, while I could sit for hours with Marshall talking about our mutual love of bison, in this episode, we really talk about the history of the species, prehistoric history, all the way to the modern context of what it means to be a bison rancher. Now, I'm lucky enough to have Marshall a frequent flyer out here at Rome Ranch. And one of the things that I admire about him is anytime we're with a group of people, say a community tour or community bison harvest, Marshall quickly enriches everyone's experience by blessing that sacred space with all types of cool facts about American history and specifically how bison play a critical role in American history. Actually, they're indivisible. To truly know American history, you have to truly know the history of the North American bison. So here we go. You guys are going to love this episode. Marshall Seedorf, 
let's do this thing, buddy. All right, Marshall, my good friend. Um, super happy to talk to you about the American bison. Um, that's what this episode's about, not buffalo. But uh, we'll get into that here in a second. But can you first just explain to me where your love, where your passion for these creatures originated? Yeah, absolutely. It's it's hard to explain, to be honest with you. I, I grew up in Georgia in the southeast and a place that had little to no exposure to the animal. Uh, but yet my third word was an attempt to say buffalo. And yes, <laughs> buffalo, not bison. Uh, I was I, My parents will quote it as I was saying buckabo, but I must have seen a, a buffalo in a book or a, some type of television show. And I was just immediately enthralled with the creature and tried to say its name. So it came out Buckabo. Wow. And ever since then, it's been a, a lifelong passion that's kind of grown and developed. And I've really gotten into American history and you can't tell the, the history of this country without talking about Buffalo. You know, there's a lot of symbolism in the animal itself, but it's also a common thread and there's a lot of lessons to be learned and you can tell the story of America, you know, through the eyes of a, a buffalo. That, that's amazing, man. So I remember the first time that we sat down together to talk about you joining the Force of Nature team. You, you told us that story about your third word, and it was just, it was just so surreal. It's like, how can you not hire this guy? How is he not <laughs> divinely sent into your life uh, on this pathway? Uh, and, and so I was like, maybe, maybe in some of your previous lives, you were like a buffalo or bison hunter or a tracker. Maybe. Hopefully I was one of the good ones that or helped uh, contribute to the conservation of species. <laughs> <laughs> well, or maybe you were one of the decimators and then you're making up for it in this life. Yeah. Because it seems to be like a passion of yours and something you're really championing. Um, okay. So before we get much further down the, the road, I think we got to clear the air, clear the room. Um, so you keep saying buffalo, buffalo and I keep saying bison. People are going to be confused. And you get this, I get this out at the ranch. People come out, first word they, they, first question they have is like, hey, what's the difference between a bison and a buffalo? And so if someone asks you that, how do you explain that? I'd say it's an American buffalo culturally. Uh, the genus and species scientifically is bison bison, which describes our American buffalo, which just is different than a Cape buffalo. It's different than a water buffalo that are native to other continents, but it's our American buffalo. Okay, so they're the same same creatures, same species, but sci scientifically, it's appropriate to say bison because the the yeah you're saying I think even the plains bison is bison 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 when you look at it from a scientific name, and then the buffalo, the cultural buffalo in America, whatever that that where did that come from? Why why did we call an animal that was not a buffalo native to like Africa or Asia a buffalo? I think when settlers first came to the United States, they referred to anything that they could produce leather from as a buff. And so elk, deer, a lot of other species that fell in that category were referred to as buffs. And then elk and whitetail and other animals got specific names and the buffalo lived on and, and kind of championed the term through and became the American buffalo. That is that's that's interesting. I, f I feel like that's the predominant narrative that I've heard, but I've heard other stories. And and so and even with that specifically, okay, so the term buff, I've heard different ideas here, but like that that would have been like maybe French fur trappers first kind of coming into contact with this species that is only found in North America at this time 
and they don't know what the hell to call it. So they, they like the French word was les bouffes. <laughs> Have you heard that? I haven't heard les bouffes, but I kind of like the sound of it. So I heard that in French, les bouffes means oxen or beef. That's wild. And then I've also heard the story that when Europeans came over, they had, they had been to Africa, they had been to Asia, so they had seen Cape Buffalo, water buffalo. They never saw a bison before. And they said, well, that kind of looks like a Cape Buffalo or something like that. Yeah, I think that's the story that gets the most traction. Right? I've heard that from a lot of people, and it's pretty credible, I think. Um, I was doing a little research for this podcast, and I, I looked up the word origin for bison. Because we kind of like talked about the word origin of buffalo. And do you know this one? I don't, know. It's crazy, man. It's a little offensive if you're a bison or buffalo. But it is the, originally a Slavic or Baltic in origin. And it would have been wisant. And it means stinking animal. It's pretty rude. It's interesting. I mean, you and I have been around a lot of buffalo, bison, um, I don't regard them as being particularly stinky. I mean, during the rut, the bulls get a nice little musk to them that <laughs> I'm, honestly kind of has a little sweetness and heat to it, but not stinky, I don't think. Dude, you and I are on the same wavelength because <laughs> I felt the same way. I've never smelt a, uh, a nasty smelling bison before. I think it smells like the earth and like the healthiest attributes of the earth. Like it, it's comforting to me. It reminds me of like living systems. Yeah, it's like a healthy, alive smell. Yeah. So that that's just so bizarre to me. Um, I think we could get into like this whole nomenclature debate on bison or buffalo, but for this podcast, we're gonna use that, use those words interchangeably. You can give me your best argument for why we should be calling them buffalo. I'm gonna give you my best argument why we call them bison. I'll go first. So it's all about greenwashing. You hate greenwashing. I hate greenwashing. There is a, is, this has happened before, specifically in the pet food industry, where companies are marketing products for dogs primarily as buffalo meat. And then I've even seen it on the package where there's a herd of bison being hunted by a wolf or something cool like that. I'm like, shit, yeah, I want to buy that. I want to feed my dog that. And then you turn over the ingredient label and it's first ingredient is like a buffalo, like a Asian buffalo. And so that that's a little sketchy because that's where it can kind of get confusing and lead to green greenwashing, which we're anti-greenwashing. So that's my that's my argument, man. What you got? I'd say first to clarify, I mean, you and I both work in the meat industry. And in the past three and a half years of my journey working in the meat industry, definitely jumped on board with Team Bison to refer to the product in a package, right? Because greenwashing, I'm not a fan of. And I personally want to see more bison on the continent. And I want to make sure if I'm supporting bison as a meat product, I'm supporting the animal that I'm intending to support, the American buffalo. Now, culturally, this argument starts to make its own gravy. And so <laughs> my counter would be, how many states have a city or town named bison? Oh, uh, jeez. None that... I can't honestly think of any. Yeah, so there's 18 states that have a city or town named Buffalo. Oh, Lord. All those people. But, okay, when were those towns and states probably formed, though? 
when people were referring to them as American buffalo, <laughs> as they still do today. Maybe before the science suggested that they were actually a bison. So that's just false representation. Yeah. The other thing I'll say is, you know, how many famous Western outlaws carried the name bison? Oh, no. Uh, probably, probably the outlaws that had bison in their name are all dead. Or they just didn't become legends. Yeah. Well, the legendary ones carried the, the buffalo. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. Um, all right, man. Well, if okay, wait. I'll get out one more thing for you. Just totally Matt Walsh style. What what is a buffalo? What is a buffalo? Don't think too hard. What is a buffalo? Well, a buffalo could be many things. But American <laughs> buffalo is a bison. Okay, so that's that's science. That's reality. I agree with you. So okay, well, whatever. Same thing, man. We're on. We we both love this animal. Um, okay, let's get into it because there's just so much to cover here. In uh, to really do this animal honor and justice. Wow, we could spend days talking about how cool they are. But I think at some point we need to start kind of like with the the prehistoric origins of the species. Are you good with that? Absolutely. Okay. So We're going back to the land bridge or even further? Oh, let's I think before the land bridge. Um and you you know, we can go back so far, but I'm going to go back to about 200,000 years ago. Okay. So there the this would be like the great grandfather of the modern bison. And it was the steppe bison. And this thing, you know, this thing migrated from Siberia into Alaska. So entered North America via the Bering Land Bridge. And once entered into the United States, or sorry, well, North America, you know, this thing lived from southern Mexico all the way to Alaska. And have you heard of the uh, the story of Blue Babe? Mm-mm. No? Oh, my God, Marshall. This is going to blow your mind. So in 19, I think it was 79, some gold miners outside of Fairbanks, Alaska, were doing some excavating. And they were using this technology where they could melt away snow in this glacial area. And they found not gold. They found an animal perfectly preserved. And oh, I have heard about this. Dude, yes. yes. This was a steppe bison. The, the carbon dating of this animal could only go back 55,000 years. That was like the maximum that they could reliably age it. But it was older than that. And this this steppe bison was killed by some kind of American lion or large predator and, and basically got away, wasn't consumed, and then died in the, in the frost and then was perfectly preserved. And so when these guys thawed this animal out, do you know what they did? They ate it. I, one of the professors <laughs> at one of the, I think it was the University of Alaska, actually cooked some of the neck meat, if I remember the story right. Yes, ate mummified bison stew meat. I mean, I'm jealous. I was gonna say, what the heck? We're probably the two people in the world. They're like, just so much respect for that guy. Absolutely. Uh, I would, you know, and like the only thing that really bums me out is that I think it would have been cool that if, in addition to eating it, they would have sent that meat to like a nutritional density lab because yeah. it'd be fascinating to know like the vitamins, the minerals, micronutrients in that compared to the modern bison. Yeah. Or even if they could have gotten some of the gut out and done an analysis on what it was eating and how much that's different than what's available there today or something. Totally. So this steppe bison roamed the mammoth steppe, which is, um, it was the world's most extensive biome, extensive landmass, uh, span from Spain eastwards to Canada, from the Arctic Islands, southward into China. Um, it roamed the earth with woolly mammoths, ancient reindeer, uh, ice age horses. 
and there's intact cave drawings in Spain and France that depict this animal. And I saw a, an actual statue that was, I think, unearthed in Spain of a step bison, and it was licking its back. It was licking one of those wounds that, like, the bison at Rome Ranch lick mm-hmm. on their back, and everyone's like, were they fighting? It's like, no, they're just licking their insect aggravation. So that bison, pretty legit. That when it when it came into North America, the steppe bison quickly evolved into bison latifrons, which was also known as like the longhorn bison. That thing was pretty beast mode. It was 50% larger than a modern bison, so like the bulls could get up to 4,400 pounds. Freaking tanks, their horns would have been seven feet tip to tip. So kind of like a, a longhorn. That, I mean, how you're pretty tall. You're like, what, six? Six, two, six, three. I yeah. think that's tall because I'm short. So that the the horn span on that animal alone would have been longer than Marshall's body. Fucking crazy. Yeah, and they were thick too. I mean, they like longhorns kind of get a little spindly, but these things had some girth to them. Very much. Uh, they roamed till about 10,000 years ago. Um, you know, after that, the it evolved into the bison antiquus because, you know, North America climate was changing. Um, this would have been after like the Holocene apocalypse or the extinction and bigger animals had less favorable attributes. You know, the, the vegetation was changing. And so bison antiquus evolved from that. And then we're getting pretty close up to about 10,000 years ago. That's when we, we kind of first uh, see the bison antiquus leave the equation and it gave rise to bison bison, the animal that we love so dearly. Um, and we, you know, currently there's the plains bison, like two subspecies, plains bison, and then the woodland bison. Have you ever seen a woodland or a mountain bison? Mm-mm. No, they're apparently a lot bigger, taller in statute, heavier, a little more wary from what I've heard. Yeah. But I haven't seen one with my own eyes. I haven't either. Um, yeah, I think they like the cold climates a lot more than like where, where we're at, but they're, I think, yeah, they're bigger and they're maybe like a little less evolved in in a land of bison, but I would love to love to eat one. So, you know, without spending this whole episode, just talking about that prehistoric origins, as Marshall alluded to, there's, you said 18 different towns or cities named 18 states that have a city or town named Buffalo something. And are those like all in one geographical area? Or they... I think they're spread out across the country. In fact, I think the most well-known of those towns, Buffalo, New York, is probably the only one that didn't historically harbor bison. <laughs> that ironic. Is, that is ironic. Why do you think it was called Buffalo then? It's a good question. I don't, I don't know much about the history of that. Yeah. Um, okay. So that, I, I just kind of want to hand you the mic to talk more about like, um, Let's still go back in time, but let's talk about bison, bison, kind of like the more modern bison. And maybe what, what would you see if you were like one of the first explorers to come to North America? Yeah, there's, uh, I think one of the interesting places to start would have been mid 1800s and we'll go back from there. And so if you coming across the continent in the early to mid 1800s, I'm pretty comfortable with the number 40 million. There would have been 40 million bison stretched out across the country, across the continent, really, touching pieces of almost every state uh, and going into Mexico up through Canada. Um, and yeah, I think that's a pretty good number based on what I've seen. Would you agree with that? 40 million? Man, so- 
Yeah, they weren't necessarily the best at doing census, but yeah, I've, I've heard 20 to 60. Yeah. So you're kind of splitting the difference. Yeah. And so if you take a step backwards from there, it's really interesting to look at. And so, you know, you had early North American settlers coming through the continent, uh, hunting mostly with bows and arrows and spears. Uh, bison was, was definitely a, a primary food source for a lot of these peoples. And that's how they hunted them. Um, you know, with the occasional buffalo jump or, you know, opportunistic use of fire or, or other techniques. And then everything started to change. You know, this was going on for centuries, thousands of years. And everything started to change in the 1600s, 1700s. Uh, the conquistadors brought the horse to North America. And the Native Americans immediately adopted this horse and took it to the next level. And it became part of their life, part of their culture, and their primary instrument in effectively hunting bison. And so now they could hunt them on horseback at close range, moving at speed, shooting arrows, you know, into a running bison at, you know, point blank range. And so they became a lot more effective very quickly at hunting and killing bison. And so when you look at this population graph of bison in North America, a lot of experts will tell you that there was a, a true beginning to a significant decline in the population of bison in the 1700s, you know, in that period of time. And then smallpox really hit the Native Americans. Uh, it was a disease that was foreign to them. They weren't adapted to it, hadn't gone through generations of their descendants. And so, it, you know, the estimates are that it wiped out 90% of the Native Americans living in North America. Smallpox alone? Smallpox uh, alone, wow. coupled with some other diseases, but smallpox is the number one killer. And so going back to that original number, 40 million in the mid to early 1800s, a lot of experts will tell you that that number was a, a rebound in the bison population as a result of the loss of 90% of their primary hunting body in the oh, Native wow. Americans. Because the natives would have been like the one of the apex hunters that, that hunted the bison, right? Absolutely. And so they'd been impacting the population for thousands of years. And then as a result of a huge decline in their population, you had a huge increase in the prey population of the bison. And so when North Americans started to come across, the, or not North Americans, uh, settlers started to come across the continent, especially, you know, early to mid 1800s, they were seeing this inflated population that, like we said, we're kind of comfortable with that number, 40 million. Um, and I think one of the, some of the most interesting descriptions of bison are from the Lewis and Clark expedition and what they saw and what they recorded seeing in that period of time between about 1803 to 1806, because they were on the first wave of people that had ever tried to cross the continent experiencing things that no settler had ever seen before. And, and what, what, what were those descriptions? What did, what did they look like? Yeah, so a little plug here, but there's a book called um, Undaunted Courage that is an accumulation of a lot of the Lewis and Clark journals uh, a lot of them are Meriwether Lewis's journals uh, himself and then a lot of the, the people on the expedition. But I'll read you an excerpt from this because I think it does a beautiful job of uh, depicting the prairie at the time, but then also the bison and, and just how numerous they were. So this is uh, July 11th, 1806. This would have been uh, on Lewis and Clark's return expedition. They had reached the Pacific Ocean uh, in 1805, and now they were on their way back. Um, and so here we go. The morning was fair and the plains looked beautiful. 
The air was pleasant, and a vast assemblage of little birds, which crowd to the, the groves on the river, sung most enchantingly. Proceeded with the party across the plain to the White Bear Islands. Through a level, beautiful, and extensive high plain covered with immense herds of bison. It is now the season at which buffalo begin to compete, and the bulls keep a tremendous roaring. We could hear them for miles. And there are such, there's so many of them that is one continuous roar that we hear. Our horses had not been acquainted with the buffalo, and the way they appeared much alarmed the horses. The Missouri bottoms and on both sides of the river were crowded with buffalo, and I sincerely believe that there were no less than 10,000 buffalo within a circle of two miles around that place. Wow. <clears throat> I would have loved to see that, man. That'd be beautiful. That would be like the the earth was moving. Absolutely. I mean, can you imagine ten thousand bison? You're you're riding a horse down a riverbank in the middle of Montana and looking around and seeing ten thousand bison, not only seeing them, but hearing so many bull roars during the rut that it's just one continuous sound that's filling the air. <laughs> yes. I mean you could see that from from miles away. Uh, it would be like a, a dark brown or black carpet just covering the earth and kind of moving as an organism, which would be so cool. I think it's it's also I, – I, I've heard stories that the number of bison, we'll just say 40 million, that's significant. But then those herds were also, you know, like there was it, it was multi-species in the fact that there were pronghorn in there. There could have been elk in there, some other deer. And so all, all in all, you know, at that point in time, there would have been – over 105 million undulate ruminant animals kind of migrating up and down North America, co-evolving with our landscape. Yeah, the story of the buffalo is emblematic of the story of a lot of these other animals too. You know, they experience the same downfall in market hunting that we're probably about to get into uh, and then rebuild and conservation efforts and <clears throat> very iconic species of our landscape and absolutely on top of the ungulates you would have had grizzly bears black bears mountain lions yeah. wolves you know intermixed with all these populations pushing them around and moving them and all kind of working in synchrony how does that how does that work with the with the predator relationship with these large herds of animals and and i guess yeah as bison being referred to as a keystone species can you kind of talk to me a little bit about the ecological role that they played? Yeah, so they were the keystone species in our North American ecosystem. I mean, a lot of the ecosystem evolved the way it did, both because of the bison and as a result of the bison. I mean, the, the vast grasslands, uh, the landscape, you know, the species of animals that exist, it was all kind of a trickle from that keystone, the bison. And I think one of the interesting things to, to look at with the, the buffalo, the bison, is the relationship with the wolves. Because the wolves were really the apex predator of much of the continent. And their apex prey animal was the, the buffalo. And it's really interesting. I've done some studying up on, on wolves and their relationship with buffalo. And it's said that wolves don't so much care about herds of buffalo under a thousand animals. Because under a thousand animals, there's not likely to be enough of a herd to have really sick or hurt animals that it's worth the wolves time to go investigate the herd. When you get a herd of above a thousand animals, just by sheer numbers, there's going to be a sick animal, an animal with a hurt leg, enough calves that the herd can't protect them. 
And so the wolves will opportunistically hunt that herd, push them and drive them enough that the, the sick or young or, you know, hurt animals are, are naturally fall to the back of the herd and become easy prey for the, the wolf. The That's wolf. awesome. Um, so the, I think, yeah, what you're describing, it's, it's what's known as the predator-prey relationship. And it's kind of like what we try to emulate today with our current management of herds in a regenerating way, whether you're raising bison or cow or sheep or goats. It's, you know, historically these animals were hunted on the plains and for protection, they were always moving or else they would have been predisposed to this wolf ambush that you're describing so perfectly. And then our soil systems and our ecosystems co-evolved with that high density movement, um, and then the prolific long periods of rest. And, and the way, I don't know if you've ever heard this analogy, but I like it. Um, and it's perfect with what you're saying. It's like, I don't even know if people go into movie theaters anymore, but just whenever movie theaters were a thing, uh, if you went to go see the movies and you go into this dark theater and there's only one other person in the dark theater, under normal circumstances, you're not going to sit next to that person. That'd be like, you'd be a creep, a weirdo. Um, however, if you walk into this open movie theater, there's one other person and you, you know, you're on the other side and then like someone comes on the mic or the projector and says, Hey, by the way, there's a pack of wolves in here. Well, guess where you're going to go. You're going to go right next to that random stranger. Cause like you have safety in numbers, or at least a perception of safety. So that's also like that herd dynamic that how those bison co-evolved to be in such tight groups. Um, and yeah, like you're saying, wolves were just such an important part of our landscapes and, and our fertile food systems. Yeah, they were the apex predator. I mean, people think about grizzly bears and these other animals that were absolutely dominant predators, but the true apex predator across the continent was the wolf. That's wild. And um, I believe, I wonder how many wolves, I, I, I haven't thought of any census number on wolves, but can you imagine you're saying like the bulls, the bull bison calling during rut? I mean, can you imagine the sheer number of wolves that could have been howling at night and what that sounded like. Mm, I would love to be, <laughs> be able to go back and hear that and witness that. Yeah. We're, we're the weirdos that, that would love to be that, be on that. Um, I, I'm with you, man. So, okay, let's talk a little bit. So we're kind of on modern bison. We're in the 1800s for people who've never spent time with bison. Um, Kind of, can you explain just a little bit about the herd dynamics that you've observed? Well, the herd instinct is really strong. And for the reason you just described, right? Like that is their safety. Their safety is in numbers and their safety is, you know, how many sets of eyeballs can we get together? How many sets of horns? Um, and so they, their herd instinct is very strong. I mean, you and I have worked them enough to know that if you have to run them through shoots to, you know, do a health inspection or pregnancy inspection. When you start to break them into individual animals, they are just not happy. You know, they want to be with their comrades. Yep. Um, and so you see that dynamic play out, you know, the, it's interesting, you know, with, with bison, the lead animal is usually a cow. Um, usually an older cow. Hold on. Of, you're confusing some people. Cow? Female. Okay. Yep. So female, a grown female is a cow, a grown male is a bull, and then a calf of any sex is a calf. It's a young, young animal. So, okay. So if the females are the matriarchs, if they're like the alpha members of the herd, then what, what are the bulls doing? The mature bulls and what's, what is their function in the herd? Yeah. So the herd dynamic kind of plays itself out over the course of a year, right? And so for a lot of the year, 
you know, the bulls will kind of hang out in bachelor groups and they're buddies. They're just kind of hanging out together, eating together, chilling, respecting each other as bison would, you know, as much as they can. And uh, the cows and calves are kind of doing their thing, you know, off to the side and they all kind of co-mingle, but there's a kind of a, sl- a clear separation. And then the rut comes, you know, midsummer hits, the hormones spike, the cows start coming in the heat and all those bachelor bison bulls that had spent the last nine or 10 months kind of hanging out and being friendly now look at each other with the the evil eye and (laughs) want to fight to the death for the right to breed those cows yeah oh boy so uh, i love it man the so like these animals they their cycle their reproduction cycle is controlled by nature it's seasonal as you've alluded to and 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 i've always i always think about it as july 4th one of my favorite holidays, celebration of America and our independence. Uh, that's that's when the rut kind of starts, and and it always is wild to me because I'm like, what on earth was the creator thinking, putting these huge animals into a breeding frenzy in July and August in Texas, and uh, it's just too damn hot. Like, how could you even be thinking about fighting all day long and then fornicating? And it's it's they have the same gestation. The female, the cows have the same gestation as an adult human female, and then they're dropping calves in the spring. And then it's like, oh well, that makes sense. Like these calves are hitting the ground when Mother Nature is providing the most abundant resources for nutrient dense milk and shelter and habitat and water, and and like that's where all this strange breeding happens and the timing. Yeah, and the other thing is, you know, the concept of predator swamping, where you think about the wolves and the other prey animals that would have been following these herds of bison, it was important that they dropped all their calves at about the same time and overwhelmed the predator population because I want to say, and this could be off, but like one third of bison calves historically would have been preyed upon and killed by some type of predator, mainly wolves. Yeah. And so it was important that all of that happened at once. So the wolves could only do so much damage before the calves got big enough to really survive amongst the herd and be able to outrun the wolves and keep up with the herd. That's genius. Mother Nature thought of a lot of different scenarios. Wow. Uh, so it's like, yeah, the wolves could at only At the expense eat so of the many. bison bull, right? <laughs> I mean, the bull gets the short end of the stick. He gives up food and water at the hottest time of the year yes. for reproductive sake. And he comes out of the summer in rough shape a lot of times. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I've seen it where at the end of the rut, the bulls look just terrible. They'll lose 20, 30% of their body mass because when all you're doing is fighting your former best friends and future best friends, because they, <laughs> they get over it once the rut's over, um, you know, it's like they're in pretty bad shape. They just kind of forgot to eat. They need to just like go uh, to, to the spa and recover, go to a buffet. Are you guys enjoying this episode about the American bison? This is the most incredible native species that co-created our most vibrant, resilient, fertile ecosystems. And what better way to celebrate this animal than to consume the nutrient-dense gift of life that it shares? So I invite you to head over to the sponsor of this podcast, forceofnature.com, and load up on regenerative bison. To just name a few of the cuts that Force of Nature sells, you got bison tenderloins, of course, ribeyes, you have short ribs, also buco, tongue, ground meat, even an ancestral organ grind. 
And if you ever feel weak or famished like a bison breeding bull at the end of the rut, this is a great way to restore your vitality, to recharge your own energetic system. That's forceofnature.com. And now back to the episode. Again, I think people are getting a, a greater picture of these animals as a herd species, but can you talk about, you know, a couple different times you've been out to the ranch, you've been there for field harvest, you've interfaced with these animals on a very intimate personal level. And so like, what do you, how would you describe their, the attributes of their fur? Um, we've kind of talked about what they smell like, but what they feel like, um, what they look like, uh, what they sound like. Yeah, the sound, you know, we talked about that a little bit in Lewis's description of that herd of 10,000 during mating season and that grunt or roar that the bulls are making. And the herd as a whole, you know, outside of mating season kind of has like a grunt that is very primal. And you hear and it kind of just, it harkens you back to a different time. Um, and I think that is, that sound in and of itself is really cool. You mentioned the the fur. Um, when you run your hand through a, a bison's for especially in the winter time when they've got their winter coat on it's like wool it's like thick thick wool um and it's just got this dense quality to it that's really hard to explain you almost can't run your hands through it because it's so dense and entangled that you'll catch your fingers in it but it still has like a softness to it that's really interesting what uh, i'm wearing bison wool socks and yeah they're they flex hard it, it's a great fiber underutilized for sure but as you're running your fingers through that wool like what kind of things are in that wool all kinds of seed uh dust and dirt and clumps of mud um the seeds are really interesting because you talk about bison birds that are now called well buffalo birds but now called cow birds mm -hmm. Um, that would have followed these herds of bison, basically picking parasites, bugs, and seeds out of their fur. Um, that was their primary source of subsistence was following the herds and picking, you know, th those life forms out of the animal. Um, and we'll get back to the market hunting in a second, but that was one of the way that the hunters often found the herds. If they were kind of below a rise or something, they'd look for the birds over the herd. Wow. Um, when when I when I interface and get to interact with one of these animals right after a harvest, and I definitely notice the seeds in the fur, and that's just wonderful. There's so much biodiversity. It's almost like a its own micro ecosystem. Like I've seen spiders and other insects I can't even identify, just all entangled in there. And you know, like as these animals or ecosystem engineers, keystone species creating a greater positive return on the ecosystem that they interact with, you know, like those seeds when they wallow also, which is a very bison thing to do, which is like roll around on your back for various reasons. You're transporting seeds. You're increasing the biodiversity of the plant species. And, and I love picking up the hoofs and I love just admiring and appreciating all the seeds that are in the hoofs and all like that above ground oxidized grass, also known as carbon, that they're trampling back into the soil to feed the biome. It's like these animals are the perfect, like the architecture of their design. There's just not a better seeding machine or land management tool that I can think of. Yeah, they're incredible. And the thing about the hooves that always gets me in the moment is, you know, when you pick up just the hoof on itself, the amount of weight there is just in what is essentially a couple toenails, right? A couple toenails and some shank 
it's incredibly heavy. But you think about the amount of weight that that hoof can carry and the speed at which they can move. You know, they can run 35 miles an hour. It's incredible. Mad respect. Second fastest native land animal in North America. Second to the pronghorn. Yeah, pronghorn. It's amazing. Wait, is the pronghorn an antelope? It is. <laughs> no, it's not. Oh, here we go again. Another species. <laughs> Ironically sitting here under a pronghorn. <laughs> oh, I think it's off camera, but it's beautiful. Um, so, okay. I think probably the the other really big characteristic of the bison that we just have to touch on is the hump. It's just so unique to that animal. And um, like, why do they have a hump? What's it for? Holding that head up. I mean, if you look at a bull bison, their heads can weigh 150, 200 pounds. And so that hump is a bone structure and a muscle structure just to hold that head and move it around. You know, these animals out on the Great Plains in the middle of winter are often using that head to plow snow to the side to dig for grass and food. And, you know, they need a a solid structure to hang that head off of. Yes. Have you ever eaten the hump roast? I have. Okay, good. Good, good. That's like one of the best kept secrets of a bison. No one really understands that. And, you know, again, to be clear, like the hump on a bison, it's not like a camel hump. It, hump. it is functional, like you mentioned, um, but it's you know, when you dissect it, it, like the thoracic vertebrae, the spinous processes are huge right there. And it's a really great ligament and muscle attachment point. But then right over that is this beautiful flap of muscle that's fatty. And it's the bison hump roast. And typically, I'd say most people just disregard it as like grind and grind it up. But how, how did you eat it? In a roast and like in a stew. Yes. I kind of wish I would have just cooked some. And maybe one of our next bison harvests, I can pull some off just to throw on a skillet. But nice. I just wanted to have some because it's unique to bison, right? So unique. Such a delicacy. Um, okay. So I hope everyone understands how important these animals were to our landscape. You know, like I I always think about our most fertile food system. So where we commonly think of modern agriculture in the United States, and we think about like the most fertile soils and the corn belts and all that, like those were the migratory pathways of the bison. Those were the areas where the bison deposited and cycled fertility for millennia. And so where we extract our plant-based monoculture industrial ag systems like that was that fertility was given to us it was gifted by the bison so like it's just so clear that these animals were keystone and we're kind of like this is when they're peaking it's really interesting about the native american population going down and then inversely the bison population going up but then that was a pendulum or a wave so bison population goes up to 40 million and then take me to the point and kind of leading up to it where they damn near went extinct. Yeah, so we've landed on this number of 40 million, and we'll just we'll peg that at the mid-1800s. And then the Civil War happened, and then the period of the Great Slaughter started. And so to kind of set it up, it's a perfect storm against the bison. They have an inflated population. Their primary predator source, the Native Americans, have declined significantly as a result of disease. It's the heyday. It's the good old days for the bison. Civil War ends, you've got a bunch of military trained, experienced marksmen coming off the battlefields with little other experience 
life experience outside of fighting in war. Um, you know, some of these characters had a little vigilante outlaw to them. You know, others were just pioneers. They wanted to go do something and, and grand adventure um, coming off of what was the, this national conflict. And so, you know, you had the invention of the rifle, 50 caliber rifle. Uh, you had westward expansion. You had these Civil War folk moving west. You had the expansion of the railroad moving west. Uh, and ultimately, what was kind of the pinnacle that started this slaughter was the development of the hide market. You had hides that initially were low in value, but then they started to be shipped back as the railroad was moving west to the eastern markets, and they started to develop usage for the leather. And I think one of the primary usages, uh, in the States at least, was for uh, factory belts, mm -hmm. machine belts, and they would what we now use rubber for, they would actually stretch hides and, you know, sew them together and, and make machinery belts out of, which you can imagine was very productive for, you know, industrializing society. Um, <clears throat> and so the market started off at mere cents a hide. And, you know, in this period after the Civil War, there's a, a pinnacle of about 12 years where this market hunting phenomenon really catapulted itself into the slaughter of these 40 million bison and the, the hide value increased to about $5 a hide. To put that in perspective, the value of an average acre of land in the United States at the time was $5. Oh my so, god! Although it doesn't seem like a lot in today's dollar, the fact that you could slaughter one bison and send the hide on a rail car back east and make enough money to buy one acre of land and you start looking at the herd and you're a businessman with, you know, wartime experience, you got a little renegade in you, this is a huge opportunity. Oh, it's right? a life-changing. Yeah, it's a gold rush. Yeah, it was a gold rush. And, yeah. you know, like what you're saying, I think two things that really just to add emphasis, the in many circumstances, the rest of the carcass was just laid out on the, on the prairie, right? So it was definitely underutilized. They didn't have refrigeration at the time, so not like they necessarily could have harvested meat. Uh, there was some commerce opportunities with tongue, which maybe you'll get into. But the um, the other thing that I think is important is like that five dollars per pound. Actually, or sorry, per five dollars per hide. I looked up the modern conversion rate of that a couple of weeks ago at a bison harvest we did, and it was something like the equivalent to the modern day was like two hundred bucks, give or take. And so yeah, if you if you if you harvest a hundred bison a day, which is totally doable. Um, Take the hides. That's twenty thousand dollars a day, um, in, in modern modern currency, which is very lucrative. And um, I think we, you know, like the the conventional narrative that I always hear, and it kind of drives me crazy because I think your analogy of the perfect storm is awesome. You hear that like it was the United States Army that just eradicated the bison to wage war on Native Americans and their way of life, and certainly there was some contributing factors to that but this market opportunity i mean this was life-changing so it was it, it was a rush to see who could shoot and kill as many bison as they could yeah i mean my opinion a little bit but i think that story about the u.s army being involved at the demise of the the native americans is kind of our modern day highly politicized version of what happened i mean this is a capitalistic society and has been since our founding who was paying these market hunters it wasn't the U.S. Army. Right. They were self-made businessmen of their own sort 
and they saw a market opportunity for the hides. They put together their own outfits of sometimes hundreds of people and traveled together as an outfit. You know, with most of the folks in the outfit, their primary job was to skin the animals and, you know, flesh as much meat off the hide as they could, salt it, stack them, and move them as close to the railway as they possibly could so that they could be sold to the market and, and shipped back east. And so from that standpoint alone, I think you could almost disprove that of like, who's paying these people? Yeah, it's pretty It clear. wasn't the U.S. government. I think there was some auxiliary benefit. You know, I think people probably recognized at the time, it's like, hey, these market hunters are doing this thing that's also good to accomplish this thing we also want to do, which was to put the Indians on the reservations and bring them into our culture and, and you know, all kinds of atrocities associated with that. But I don't think that was the primary driver. And I think you and I have some really interesting modern context because you've been out to a handful of bison field harvest at Rome Ranch. You've, you've shot bison at Rome Ranch. And I guess people, if you, if you haven't been in this situation, you expect if you shoot into a herd at our ranch, it's like 140 animals that everything scatters. And so you're like, well, how the hell could you kill 100 bison in a day? But ex can you explain what happens in those field harvest? Yeah, well, and I can I can kind of tie it in too to what the marksman strategies were yes. of these oh, market yeah. hunters. So Absolutely. these outfits were often led by the shooter. They were the one that organized the party, the kind of real entrepreneur of their time. But they were the shooter. They were the skilled person within the group and kind of commanded where they were going and what they were doing. And so they'd go out, establish a campsite on the prairie close to a water source, relatively close to somewhere they could transport the hides for market sale and close to a buffalo herd. And so then they send out the shooter in the morning and the shooter sneaks in close to the herd. He gets his rifle up on a rest. He gets <clears throat> aimed at the herd and he tries to deduce where that herd is going. And whichever animal tended to be moving away from his position or or lended itself to to display features of like the dominant animal that others would follow, that would be the first target. So he would down that animal and shoot it in the lungs. And usually it would die pretty quickly and basically kind of collapse where it was. If that's the dominant animal and the herd instinct is so strong among these animals and the dominant animal has fallen over right there and they can't figure out why, there's really no reason for them to leave. They're confused. You know, we've seen it at the ranch. They'll kind of come up, investigate. They might bid some type of, um, you know, our emotional semblance of a goodbye. Um, they might gore it if it's another bull, but they definitely don't run away. You know, that herd instinct is often so strong that they they don't have that fear of running from a, a threat, but instead kind of collecting themselves and trying to deduce where that threat is coming from. And so as the shooter was going through their harvest, they'd select any animal that moved away from the center of the herd. And they could only fire a shot through these, you know, 1800s era rifles about once or maybe twice a minute because the barrel would overheat. And so it was really important that this, the selection of the animal was correct to keep the herd together. And, and the idea was, I mean, a lot of these guys could harvest 100 to 250 of them in a day. And, you know, oftentimes, you know, the skinners are starting to come in as there's animals still being harvested and the shooter's kind of moving with the herd. Um, it's, it's a really interesting thing to kind of put yourself in the perspective yeah. of that day. You know, because, right, they wouldn't have evolved to 
been hunted by humans and especially with long rifles. And so, I mean, they could have just damn near looked at that dead bison that just dropped, dropped dead, heard the bang and said, well, the thunder God took that one, you know, like a lightning bolt zapped that guy. Yeah. It's interesting. Like people like to say bison are dumb. Bison are not dumb. Bison didn't evolve. Like to your point with a, a rifle being a threat from a human that's hundreds of yards away, you know, over time, I think they evolved to realize that you know, a person at spear distance or arrow distance was a threat and they probably would have had a, a, you know, a respect for that distance and moved away from a human. And then when the horse was introduced, there's probably a process there where, you know, the animals started to recognize a human on a horse as a threat and they needed to run from that. But the onslaught of the rifle, you know, essentially in this 12 year period confined to the post-Civil War era, was so fast that there's no way the animals could react to that type of threat in that amount of time and, and survive. Yep. I think I read that like 1871 to 1872 specifically was kind of like the peak at when these animals were being hunted by these market hunters. And, and there was on average 5,000 a day that were being killed for their hides, which is, is wild to me. I think we also, you know, this perfect storm scenario where, war was waged against the bison and they were eradicated. I think it's also important to recognize, you know, the role of Native Americans in the downfall of the bison population. Um, and specifically, you know, you, you mentioned it a little bit earlier, but there's 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 a kill method called a buffalo jump, mm-hmm. which those are just fascinating to me. And there's thousands of these all over the United States. And the way that, that it would work um, would be like first peoples, so first nation, they would Typically, even before they had the technology of the horse, you know, hunters would round up bison on foot and they would kind of use a low stress stockmanship, you know, like pressure relief approach to kind of convince them to go a certain way. And where they were eventually steering them to was was a cliff. And some of these cliff faces would have been a mile long, you know, like 30 to 50 feet of a drop. And... Uh, once they would get them closer to the the cliff edges, they would build these drive lines, which were crazy, you know, like stacked stones that kind of acted like alleys or lanes. And eventually there would be uh, Native Americans that would pop out with like wolf, you know, hides on and really start the chase. And then that herd instinct would kick in. One or two lead cows would start taking off in the right direction, really being facilitated by those drive lines. And then the most badass of the native american warriors uh they would be called like buffalo runners or something like right right when the bison were approaching that cliff he would pop out from a rock ahead of the herd and he would be wearing a bison you know robe and so then you have these lead cows freaking out like a stampede is happening they're hauling ass 35 miles an hour not knowing where to go, but looking for safety. And then they see what they perceive as another lead animal kind of guiding and saying, this way, guys, like I found an out. And so they would follow that Indian runner. And then the Indian runner would know a place off the cliff where he could jump, but then land on a ledge and it had to be timed perfectly. And then just like that critical mass, that herd could not stop. They would just fly off that cliff edge. And, you know, there'd be hundreds, thousands of animals that could die in a single day. And sometimes it was to feed even just a remotely small kind of nomadic community from time to time. And, and I've even heard legends where certain tribes had beliefs where if one or two animals from that buffalo jump survived, that those animals would communicate to their ancestors not to come back because they, they would be warning them. And so there was like this superstitious belief that 
every single animal had to die that day in order for the herds to come in future years. And so I, I do think it's important that we recognize, you know, like that's just the human nature that was happening on all parties and, and the errors that were committed by everyone. But yeah, the damn near decimation of these animals, what, what, how many animals remained at the end of this? Well, at the end of the slaughter, you know, this post-Civil War period, there's estimates of, I've heard 325, 325 individuals on the low end and about a thousand animals on the high end, you know, in very small herds, you know, in different parts of the country. I think it's pretty well respected that the only place that bison weren't extirpated from is a very small herd of 20 or so animals in Yellowstone, what is now Yellowstone National Park. Um, and then you had some ranchers, you know, half a dozen, dozen ranchers in different parts of the country that as these animals were being decimated, either saw a market opportunity to bring some in and raise them as cattle uh, for some future market opportunity or out of novelty or uh, in the case of Charles Goodnight, pressure from his wife, um, you know, brought them onto their ranches and, and kept small herds. So what, you know, I think that's an interesting point because a lot of times we think about the preservation or the conservation of a species. There has to be like, um, laws and intact that protect, which I think is, it's important, but then, but what I think the surprising part of that, what you're saying is that ranchers, cattle ranchers specifically played a critical role, which, um, when I think about now the size of the herd. What's the size of the herd today? Give About half a million. Yeah. So coming back up to half a million animals, I mean, uh, do you know how many bison are in the wild? I think it's only about 4%, which would be about 20,000 animals of that total number. That's what I've heard too. Yeah. So the majority of the heavy lifting where this species is returning um, was was done by by ranchers. And in some circumstances, the very people that were market hunting the bison too. You want to hit me? Yeah, hit you with some cool facts about bison dying real quick. Yeah, when we talk about this great slaughter. Oh, so, please do. Yeah, so a lot of the early settlers, a lot of these are from the Lewis and Clark journals uh, or from folks on their uh, company, um, talked about encountering large numbers, thousands of dead bison as they came across the United States. Often, bison were killed by the dozens in a single lightning strike. You know, you can imagine huge expanses of prairie with no trees. The tallest thing standing might be a bull buffalo. And so you can imagine lightning. Fire would sweep across the prairie quickly and kill bison. The Indians actually used fire a lot to push animals either off a cliff as part of their buffalo jump strategy or into a river. Um, buffalo are terrible. They're capable swimmers, but they're very slow swimmers. And so if you could get them into a river, especially on horseback, the natives could do a, a pretty good number on them while they were in the water. They're pretty defenseless. Uh, tornadoes, there's multiple accounts uh, in Native American wise tales, and then also uh, settler accounts of tornadoes picking up and dispersing bison. Uh, the number one killer of bison historically even numerically larger than the amount that were killed by 50 caliber rifles in the post-Civil War era. Do you know what it is? Uh, disease? That's a good guess, but no. Uh, water. So 
Oh. Uh, thawing water killed bison by the thousands. How is this possible? What do you mean? And so you imagine the Great Plains. You know, a lot of these rivers historically would have gone through a freeze-thaw cycle seasonally. Uh, rivers and lakes. And so these bison are migrating in herds of, you know, tens of thousands at times. And so you get caught walking across the, the wrong lake or the wrong river on the wrong day with tens of thousands of animals in your herd. And all of a sudden you've got massive amounts of this herd that may fall through a river and go underneath ice or, you know, you just have this chaotic scene that you can imagine playing out. And as settlers started to come across the country, there's accounts of finding thousands of rotting carcasses at the bottom of ice luges and rivers. Um, it's really interesting to think about. We talk about the death that humans impose on them, but um, we don't often talk about nature and what nature can do to a wild animal. I think the cool thing that nature isn't very good at doing to bison is they are very cold hardy. Um, and I've read some studies of, of just how cold hardy bison are. Uh, they've subjected individual animals to a situation like essentially putting them in a freezer, a deep freezer that can reach extremely low temperatures and then monitoring their vital signs. And they put cattle in these, they put other animals in them, and you can kind of reach a temperature at which the animal starts giving you signals that I'm not okay. You know, their heart rate starts to increase, their oxygen level starts to decrease, you know, they're expressing signs that at this temperature, I'm not okay. And at least to my knowledge, to date, we haven't been able to find a temperature at which bison start to exhibit those signs. I think I've read studies where they've taken these animals down to negative 30 or negative 40 degrees, and their heart rate is still decreasing so that they can, you know, efficiently survive those types of temperatures. And so Man, that's pretty wild. That is so wild. <laughs> But it's also one of those things where, man, you know, there's parts of this country historically, their range, um, the Great Plains, for example, you would have these winter storms come out of nowhere and modern day cattle ranchers, you know, like when those storms come, they have to do some heavy ass lifting to round up their animals, put them in barns, protect them from the cold. But, but you know, as you're saying, there's no cold weather, there's no blizzard that could have killed the bison, you know, whereas you, there's, there's historical accounts of storms that have killed hundreds of thousands of cattle, single storms. Um, but probably the bison are just kind of like living their best life out there. That's crazy, man. Um, any, anything else you want to, you feel like we're missing before we need to go to the more modern times, any other cool tidbits? I don't know. I don't. I think we've done a pretty good job. I often think about the bison in those extreme cold situations as like almost just going to sleep inside of themselves. Like they're so big and just burly and designed for that environment that they can be so comfortable and kind of just hunker down. That's so good. I have also heard that bison in those same situations, they can hunker down. A lot of other wildlife or domesticated livestock specifically they lose access to water. All the pipes freeze, all of the ponds freeze over, the rivers freeze over. So it's like they can dehydrate. They can die of dehydration. Whereas bison in that same setting, they've evolved to be able to lick the snow, eat the snow, keep hydrated, which is a really cool characteristic that just adds to that resiliency. And I guess it's that's, there's no wonder they're the largest land mammal to survive the last ice age. 
I mean, yeah. Well, I think about the Great Plains ecosystem, and we've ta- kind of talked about the extreme cold end of it, but a lot of these places can also be 110 degrees on the wrong summer day. You think about these animals that are able to tolerate a negative 40 degree blizzard and then turn around and six six months later stand there in 110 degree weather and weather it perfectly fine. And they go through some serious physical changes throughout the course of the year to do that, but it's incredible. And yeah. you you look at that whole ecosystem of animals that you know can handle that type of swing. It's so good. And when I've spoke to Bob Lee Wesley and, and Jared Matthew Holmes about this on different occasions. And it's like, when you look at a bison, they're lean animals. So unlike other Arctic animals that put on a lot of fat to weather the storm and survive the winter, that's not the case with bison. They're, they're insulated, that really thick wool fiber coat that grows in the winter that you described putting your hands through. That thing is perfect at deflecting wind. The way that they're anatomically created. It's like their front shoulders are wider than their backs. Their hips are super narrow. Their heads are super big. And so when that wind is whipping, that northern blizzard, they they literally face the storm. And then all that cold air hits this thick coat, hits their big head, and goes over their body, kind of like, like an aerodynamic helmet or, or plane or something like that. It's just so good. Um, okay, so modern day bison issues. The herd is growing again. As a collective community, the Bison Association, National Bison Association is trying to get a million animals back um, in North America, halfway there, doing it primarily through ranches. Um, I, I think, you know, when there was this genetic bottleneck and there was, I've heard 325 animals too. And, you know, in Texas, like that Southern Plains herd, um, that was an important one with Charles Goodnight and his wife, but you know, like they pretty much everyone that had small herds of bison at some point in time had to breed, have some kind of cattle and aggression into the genetics to diversify. And so now all modern bison have cattle genetics. There's no such thing as a 100% pure genetic bison. They, they all have at least, um, or less than 1.5% cattle genetics, cattle DNA. Yeah, to put it in perspective too, I mean, we talk about Charles Goodnight as being one of the saviors of the the Southern herd and really his wife probably deserves the most credit for pressuring him to bring those animals into pasture. But his herd started off at 14 animals. You talk about genetically, it's a pretty tight bottleneck. Um, and also a lot of those were calves. You know, he was a, a big participant, participant in the market hunting. And a lot of the calves he acquired were unfortunately orphaned calves, you know, their, their mother had been slaughtered in the hunt and they were, you know, basically just followed his horse back to his ranch. Um, by the time he died in 1933, he had 250 animals on his ranch. And so a good little starter herd for sure. That Those genetics are some of the highly, most highly desirable genetics. And and now that herd has evolved to be, become the state of Texas, the official herd, state of Texas. You can see them in Caprock Canyon State Park. Yeah. Well, and actually uh, in the early 1900s, I think 1902, if I'm correct, uh, the government actually bought 21 animals from Goodnight and sent them as part of the the source herd for Yellowstone. And so we, we know that some of the animals, you know, I think it was low 20s, maybe 23, something like that, animals that were never extirpated from Yellowstone National Park. 
But when they were trying to rebuild that herd, they brought in and reintroduced herds from some of these other ranchers that had, you know, brought them in. Uh, and some of that source herd came from Goodnight here in Texas. We had a really special bull at our ranch, Cecil, who had Southern Plains, Charles Goodnight genetics. He was just such a stud. And, you know, modern day bison, like when you go to Yellowstone, which you've been, is that Yellowstone right there? Is that the Tetons or what is that? That is Yellowstone. That is the Lamar Valley. Um, That's a herd of bison crossing the Lamar River in May. So you can see some freshly born calves in that photo. Um, it's one of the, my favorite pictures my wife has ever taken. You got snowy peaks in the background. It's sunset. You've got a herd of probably two dozen animals crossing, actively crossing the river with some in the middle that are swimming, <laughs> just their heads up. And in the background, if you look closely on some of those distant hills, you just see little brown dots. And the little brown dots are actually probably my favorite part because I imagine, you know, being one of these early pioneers and coming through places like that you would have had that scene laid out for miles ahead of you of just little brown dots scattered on the hillsides. It's so beautiful. That area is one of the most gorgeous places in the world. If you live in the United States and you're like traveling and and you think you have to go to Europe or Asia or Africa to see some, some sites that will blow your mind, I just say go to Yellowstone, go to the Tetons in, in the United States. But I guess my point, like looking at those animals there in that beautiful picture, you know, those Yellowstone bison, they are big. Like there's some bulls that are humongous, you know, over 2,800 pounds. Whereas in Texas, you know, like our, our average cow could be about 900 pounds or less. Uh, an older, more dominant bull might get up to like 15, 1600 pounds. Um, but there's definitely a, a difference in body size. The further North you go, the bigger the animals are. And this is significant difference. Why is that? I've heard a lot of things, but I think the argument that holds the most water for me is um, nutrient availability. And throughout the course of the year, it makes more sense for the animal to maintain a smaller body size in the Southern Plains, just because, you know, you go through these swings of drought and heat um, and they're more resilient. You know, they need less calories a day as a smaller animal. And they're also more tolerant to high heat. Um, is that kind of in line with the way you understand it? That makes sense. The boomer bust of a lot of growth or drought makes sense to me with how to invest in your, uh, metabolic system and the size of your animal. But yeah, I've also heard that smaller animals are more effective at dissipating heat, keeping cool, regulating their body temperature, which, um, it's the trade-off, right? Cause if you're a dominant breeding bull, you know, adding weight, you know, mass, girth, all of these things, if you're fighting for dominance of a herd is a real positive attribute, but turn that around and go through a drought and and an extreme heat cycle. It's not so much. Absolutely. So, you know, another interesting tidbit, because in the evolution where we are is an industry in modern day bison ranching. The bison that you eat, so the bison that we sell through Force of Nature, very likely was a if it you know as a grass fed animal around three years old and a male. That's kind of like the perfect targeted optimized time to harvest an animal. As an industry collectively, we are keeping breeding females on the ground, dropping calves year over year. That's how we grow the herd numbers. Um, and I think there's also this like really interesting dynamic that people don't think about. But it's like if you want to support bison, if you want to see bison 
populations growing, more bison on open landscapes as they historically were, the number one thing you can do as a consumer is buy bison, which is, it's really counterintuitive because you think, well, how the hell am I doing that? If I'm buying bison, I'm creating a demand and then more bison are getting harvested to feed me, but it's the opposite effect. You're, you're actually incentivizing more ranchers to raise bison, to grow that supply chain. And so that, that you, know, you know, I think that's a really interesting component of modern day bison. I also think that the, we iconically, we think about these animals and ecosystems like that, just grazing, free ranging, you know, eating grass and forbs and legumes. But the reality is um, that's only a very small percent of modern day bison are actually grass finished technically. And, and I don't know if you've heard updated numbers. I've heard it's about 15% of all bison that you can buy at retail is truly grass fed, grass finished. Yeah, it's something that I'm really proud of that we as a company have had an impact Right. And bison compared to the cattle is not a big industry, but, you know, a company like ours, that's still a relatively small business and others like us have had a meaningful impact to get that message out there. And consumers have spoken that they want grass fed and grass finished to be part of what bison is. And that number continues to grow. And I think 15% is about what I've heard. Uh, me as a consumer, I have a rule found at a restaurant and bison's on the menu. I've got to order it. I'd love it to be grass-fed, grass-finished bison, but irregardless, I want to support the animal. And to your point, the best way to do that is to send a signal as a consumer to the industry that bison is a viable protein that consumers want. And so, yes, the best way to contribute to the growth of the species is to consume the meat product. So what's your, what's your go-to bison cut? Oh man, it's so hard. I feel like it's changed over the years. Um, a bison tenderloin is just incredible. I mean, you can't, a grass-fed tenderloin has so much flavor, so tender, but that that's a boring answer. I feel like, you know. <laughs> Cough out, huh? Yeah, I do love a good bison ribeye. You know, it's not going to be your, your conventional ribeye that you'd find, you know, off a, you know, a conventionally finished cow, but the flavor is so rich and that yellow golden fat just has such a uniqueness to it off yes. a grass finished animal. I, I never really crave bison tenderloin cause it's, it's just like, I don't know. It, it doesn't really make my stomach get excited, but every time I make it, I'm like, I should eat this every night. <laughs> yeah. This is the best thing ever. You can eat it freaking raw. It's so good. Yeah. Um, but I think my, my go-to like just for like the novelty, uh, if I could have someone prepare me bison tongue every night, I would probably, I'd probably get down with that. Yeah, if we want to get into the weird stuff for a second, I mean, the the one thing I've been floored about, um, surprised and and in a good way, at all of these harvests that I've been a part of, is the taste of bison blood. Yeah, can you describe? I, you you love this stuff. <laughs> you know, the interesting thing: every bison that we bleed out in the pasture, we have the opportunity to taste some blood, and and we think it's a way to connect with the animal and honor it, thank it. But every animal's different. Yeah, some are super mineral dense. Some I've had some that taste like someone spilt the salt shaker uh, in a pile of blood. I mean, it was like so sour with salt and minerals. And then some that have been pretty pretty mild. Yeah, I've I've had so many of the mild ones where it's almost if someone if you closed your eyes and outside of the temperature, someone didn't tell you what you were partaking in, you could almost disguise it as some some nutrient dense water. <laughs> okay. But irony water. Yeah. I mean, it is very mild. Warm water, tea. Yeah. Um, okay. So 
Well, okay. So one thing I'm going to do with Marshall is we're working on another um, Bison Myths podcast, and uh, there's this legend that if you eat, Marshall doesn't know this, this is the first time he's hearing it, but if you eat the adrenal glands on a bison, that's like the, you know, like the pack of wolves is coming to hunt them. What happens? Fight or flight? Oh, fight or flight. That's what fuels that 2000 pound plus animal to go to battle with a grizzly bear or pack of wolves. And so the legend that I've heard is that if you consume that, that you, okay, you consume it and then you do a workout, you're about to set some personal records. You're about to go beast mode. You're about to do uh, your Murph to your best time ever. <laughs> so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to recruit Marshall for that one. Um, okay. So I think there's one last thing that we have to do. We have to call your mom. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> um, what are we calling my mom about? Okay. So this, this idea that you told us at the beginning of the podcast, you know, like your third word was buffalo. I just, um, there's some skeptics out there. There's some fact checkers, hashtag fact check, that uh, want, want some proof. And I can't think of any way to get some more proof then. Let's just call your mom right now, unprompted, get her on speakerphone. And, uh, you know, I don't want you to lead her, but I definitely want you to give her the opportunity to, to answer if that, if that actually happened or if that's just your own memory. Yeah, we can do that. I can't promise she's going to answer. This is a on-the-spot type of deal. Your mom's probably super busy, but you know, this could have just been like, again, one of your previous lives. Maybe you, you were the buffalo. You were the bison. Maybe she has an opinion on that. Are we ready for this? Yeah, let's, let's see. Surprise, surprise. So Marshall's mom didn't even pick up the phone from her own beloved offspring. Now, the skeptic in me wants to believe that Marshall didn't even call his mom because he hung up before the answering machine even picked up. So who knows who Marshall even called? The plot certainly thickens, but we're going to get to the bottom of that at another episode. Let's just go ahead and include that on the roster of our next Bison Myths, Lores, and Legends episode. Now, just as convenient as it was for Marshall's own biological mother to not pick up the phone, it was super convenient to have Marshall Seedorf on this podcast. So thank you, Marshall. Really enjoyed hanging out with you. I think the next time we do this, we need to be around a campfire or something that's a little bit more on brand. But I really had a good time sharing this sacred space with you, talking about bison, all things bison related, and your passion and wisdom come across as nothing short of contagious. Now, before we depart, I want to read an actual factual ratings and review that Gigi58, I'm assuming Gigi was born in 1958, um, she left this review on our podcasts. So she said, amazing storytelling, five stars. This guy, Taylor, can make any subject interesting and informative, never boring. And most importantly, it's the gateway. Everyone needs to get hyped about the ecosystem we rely on. We don't really get the opportunity to truly know the farmers and ranchers who grow our food like our ancestors once did. But this feels like the closest you can come to that, especially if you exclusively shop at the grocery store. 
My favorite episodes are the one where Katie is the guest. What's up, Katie? You and Gigi are vibing. So thank you for that lovely review. We're going to keep reading those at the end of these episodes because that just makes my heart feel so warm. My final thoughts after recording this episode is that when you look at the decimation of the bison going from 40 million damn near down to complete extinction, just a few hundred animals on the face of the planet. Yet, a hundred years later, we're back at the point where we have half a million bison in North America. And so for me, this is a living embodiment of Mother Nature's capacity for healing, for her grace and for her forgiveness. And I am so thankful that it exceeds our own species capacity for ignorance and destruction. So thank you, Mama Earth. We're sorry. And we love you. And we're going to just keep looking into you for guidance and for wisdom, because you've only been doing this for a couple billion years. That was a kiss. <laughs>